Some years in history are more important than others. 1066 was one of those years. Within those years, some months seemed to speed up to where history is happening faster and faster. And in September, in 1066, history was happening at lightning speed. And within those months, there's days where history seems to stop, where it seems to be drawn out. Your decisions and actions taken on that day will last a century, a millennium, a collective memory. The 25th of September, 1066, was one of those days. On this day, an army of Harald Hardrada, a Viking war leader, king of Norway, was currently invading England up by York. On this day, they had gone and done friendly business with a local town, and had left all their armor back at the ships. That's when Harold Goodwinson, the Anglo-Saxon king of England, did one of the great military maneuvers of all time when he rallied an army on the move, fed it with no good logistics, and marched over 80 kilometers a day. The Viking army was not expecting him for days. Why would they? A madman would have to march that fast. Harold Goodwinson was here, and the only thing keeping him from an unarmored, disorganized Viking army was a bridge. So this bridge had to be taken, and it should be easy. Again, most of the Norse left their arms and armor at the ships. They weren't prepared for a battle. The Anglo-Saxons then will rush down to the bridge and find a single man there, and they're probably thanking their lucky stars. There's not more. Just a single man against an army. If the Anglo-Saxons can push through this one man, they'll sweep the field. Harald Hardrada will die without a fight. But remember, this is the end of an age. An age that created men whose whole entire being was battle. At the end of eras, when stars start to go out, a few shine a little brighter than others, like they're sucking in the starlight from their dead friends, but they eventually go supernova and explode. This Viking on this bridge will etch himself in history. Not his name, but his deeds. He will go supernova. The Anglo-Saxons probably sent one, two, three warriors at him at first. But he was using a Dane axe. He had a wide reach and it was a small bridge. He sweeps the field of them. Only a few swings. Next, they send three more at him. Same thing happens. The bridge is getting bloody, sticky. The Viking was probably smiling. This was his playground, and he finally gets to play. The Anglo Saxons will send more warriors and more warriors, and still the Viking cuts them down like chaff. The river starting to turn red with blood. The Anglo Saxons will send more and more. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty. They're still sending men, and this behemoth, this god, Thor reincarnated, is standing in front of them, and he won't move. What are they to do? Again, they can't go around. And as they wait, as the hours start to tick by, Harold is getting back to the ships. The Vikings are getting prepared. They're getting into their battle stances. The skalds are giving prayers. The war dances are being danced. The Vikings are getting into a battle fury. The Anglo-Saxons know they're running out of time. Every second they wait Harold Hardrada's Viking force is getting stronger, and the Anglo-Saxons are stuck staring at a wall, wielding a battle axe. 
Yet no matter how many men they send, bodies keep falling, and it's not the Dane. 25 people die. 30. All to a single man. At this point, the Anglo-Saxons are probably wondering, what is this? Not who is this, because this is obviously not a man. But what? What kind of people make this? That's when the fear starts creeping in. If this one man can hold a bridge against the whole entire army, what can an army of these people do? 35 people die to him. They probably know the stories of the cold north that makes hard men. They've lived through centuries of Viking attacks. They know the horror tales, but it's a whole nother beast to be witnessing it with your own eyes. The stories don't do them justice. Some of them probably lived under these men, or ruled by them, but only now are they truly in the Norse domain. The legends come to life now stands before you. A man who reeks of the old ways. The ways before Christendom. The ways of blood and oaths and battle. That's what they see. They see the shining example, the last great remembrance of one of the most militaristic cultures in human history. And this is their final hour, their last great symphony. And it's being sung by a nameless man on a bridge. 36, 37 die. They're getting desperate. They throw spears at him, arrows, anything. He's wearing a chain mail shirt. It simply bounces off. He has Odin's protection. 38. 39. He's getting tired now. But now no one wants to fight him. Many men now think he can't be killed. And they may be right. And him is distilled centuries of martial prowess. And tough living that make tough people. 40. But maybe they're wrong. Because while these fascinating Norse people were incredible. They were not invulnerable. As the Anglo-Saxons sneak under the bridge, one of them will eventually stab a spear up from in between the planks, kill him, and then the Anglo-Saxon army can march across. He did his duty, though. Harald Hardrada was able to form up the army, get ready for battle, and go off in a blaze of glory. The sagas will sing about him for centuries, generations. And I think about what the individual Anglo-Saxon soldier probably thought about as he marched past that dead corpse the corpse that was so glorious just a few hours, minutes before. They must all be thinking, what were these people? And we have to ask ourselves the same exact question. Hello, I am Mark Campbell, and this is Adrift, a history podcast. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the Vikings. Who were they? What were they? And why did they leave Scandinavia? So grab your axe, your shield, grow a nice long beard, pray to Odin and Thor, remember your oaths, and let's see where the history takes us. Before we can dive headlong into the main topic for this podcast, that being the Vikings, we have to do a little historical housekeeping. We have to clean up the landscape a little bit so we can better understand what kind of world the Vikings would sail down into from the frozen north. When we last left off, we were talking about the Roman Empire, the Roman Imperium, the Pax Romani, the Mare Nostrum, and how the empire flourished through choking off the different pirate havens within the Mediterranean. 
The trade was thus all Roman trade, ran by Roman merchants who were Roman citizens. And there was no safe harbors for Roman pirates to find refuge in. But, as you're hopefully aware, the Roman Empire no longer exists, so something must have changed. The fall of the Western Roman Empire, we have to specify the West Roman Empire as what we now call the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, but would they consider themselves just the Roman Empire? Continued for a thousand more years, but the Western Roman Empire fell during a time which is now referred to as the Migration Period. And we call it that because it was a time of large-scale human movement, to where many of the Germanic tribes, the Franks, the Goths, the Angles, and the Saxons would move into the Roman Empire. The Franks, of course, moving into what at that time was Gaul, what was now modern-day France where we get the name France. The Angles and the Saxons moved to England. That's when they're now called the Anglo-Saxons. The Magyars settled in Hungary. And the Bulgars, well, I hope you can figure out they settled in Bulgaria. Now, there's some historic squabbling of when the exact date was, because we have a few different historians from that era. I will be using the source of Prosper of Aquitaine, who lived during the late 4th to early 5th centuries. And he gives the date as being specifically December 31st, 406. Now, the reason why this is important is the Roman Empire had certain boundaries that it used to defend against barbarian invasion. One of those was the Danube. These large rivers were hard for tribes to all move across at once without the Romans knowing about it, being able to set up a defense force, a response, almost like a modern-day fire brigade. We could run and put out the troubles that these tribes would cause before it became too bad for the local area. And these barriers were never hard barriers. There was always leakage. 10, 20, maybe even a few hundred tribesmen could get across in boats or could just swim. But it wasn't large-scale mass migration. Not like we would see afterwards. But we really don't know how a full tribe of vandals or swavy or Allens, were able to really get across the Rhine. It's led some historians to hypothesize that as this happened on December 31st in the dead of winter, that maybe the Rhine had frozen solid, and so they could all move across at once. Unfortunately, as we have no surviving textual evidence of what happened from the people who actually did cross the Rhine on that fateful day, we probably will never know the real answer, unless... In, say, like 300 years, an AI can replicate what a human brain was thinking from just its DNA, then maybe we can go back and, and interview people from those tribes and say, hey, so why, why were you able to move your whole people over a barrier that had kept you out for hundreds of years on this specific day? Maybe they just had a really good ferry. Nevertheless, these Germanic tribes would swarm into all the West Roman Empire and wreak havoc on its populace. They first started in Gaul, because that's where they crossed over. There is some debate to where the exact location was, but many people believe that it was close to the modern-day city of Mainz. As they had crossed during the winter, their people probably needed supplies to survive that winter. As they were Germanic tribes, or maybe a better word, being a Germanic horde, they were looking for a place to settle, and Rome didn't have the military or political might to create a unified force to oppose this great movement of people within their lands. 
they had to eventually just allow it to where wherever these vandals or allens decided to stop and say this is our territory the emperors would eventually have to decree it so to maintain some mirage of political power and it's not that like these were a small number of people coming to the empire at that time the total estimated roman population would have been about 40 million people but the barbarians who were coming in were still considered to be about 750,000 people and one has to remember that a larger portion of these people would be warriors than the general roman populace at that time it's not like just a few hundred thousand farmers wanted to come in. No, there was a few hundred thousand warriors. And while they wanted land for themselves, they were going to take it. And at this point, the Roman citizen had lost the knowledge of how to properly defend himself without the legion. It had been too long. And today, with our modern infrastructure and modern political system, with more stuff in general to go around, we still struggle with the amount of immigrations we get to this very day in countries. It wasn't that long ago, and it's still happening somewhat, that Europe is having a migration crisis with the migrants making up a smaller percentage of the total population. But the inability to defend its borders and protect its people ate away at the Roman institutions that have been built up around the Mediterranean. As such, it kind of entered a death spiral to where the Roman Empire couldn't protect its people. So those people then got raided and they couldn't pay taxes because they were either broke or dead. And as they couldn't pull taxes from these people, they couldn't keep as large of an army. And because their army couldn't be as large, they couldn't protect their people. And the cycle went on and on and on until in 476, even the territories that were nominally Roman were not controlled by the Roman state or the Western Roman state. And a man of, well, barbarian background called Odysseer, eventually put an end to the charade. He titled himself King of Italy, and while there would be some efforts by Justinian I and his great general, Belisarius, to reconquer the empire, the Western Empire was split. It was carved up into petty kingdoms, ruled by different barbarians, and it would never again be truly unified as it was under the Western Roman Empire. There was a later Carlaginian Empire that controlled all of France, North Italy, most of Germany. But Western Europe will never be united as it was under the Roman Empire again. The foundation for much of European civilization was thrown in an upheaval. It'd be like if the United States completely collapsed today and different states form different power structures. To where California controls the West Coast, New York the Northeast, maybe Florida the Southeast, Texas South Central. But the ramifications of that collapse would have far-reaching consequences. Global trade was, would be sure to completely collapse. Many of the political safety debts, like NATO, that we know and love today, would be non-existent. Waking up the day after the collapse would be completely different from the world before. The land would look the same, but the human experiences from the people before and after would be almost completely different. That's what happened. That's the world that the Romans and the Germanic tribes and the Gaelic people, everyone who lived within the empire, found themselves in after 476. Europeans then had to find new ways to organize themselves to where kingdoms became the norm with each individual Germanic tribe creating its own kingdom in the areas that the Roman Empire left. The Vandals went to North Africa, where they set up a kingdom there that was eventually able to create a fleet and 
defeat one of the Eastern Roman Empire's armies when they tried to reconquer it for the Western Roman Empire. This was in the 5th to 6th century BC. The Visigoths would settle in Spain. The Franks, who were of course already settled in France, would secure their power base in the area. And there was another tribe that would set up a kingdom in the Mediterranean at that time. They would take over the Kingdom of Italy and control all of the Italian peninsula. These people were called the Lombards. And while they were a Germanic tribe, according to the book The History of the Lombards, they were originally from southern Scandinavia. And that was a land a long ways away from the Mediterranean. Pythias in 320 BC would call this land Thule. To the denizens of the Mediterranean, the people from there were simply called the North Men. Eventually, this word would be changed to the Norse. And these North Men are important to our story, as they will be the next great pirate haven. Except some historians have stopped calling them specifically pirates. They use a term that's more colloquially acceptable, that being Viking. And while this word Viking was not used in their time by them or their enemies to describe what they were doing, who they were, it's the best word that we have, so I'll be using it. When telling the story of the Vikings, I found it very hard to find a good starting spot. I'm not very good with that. I think context matters in history. You can't understand it without knowing what happened before, why it happened. And I had this struggle when looking at the Vikings. Because all their early history is fascinating. Who the actual Scandinavian people were that terrorized Europe for hundreds of years. When I first tried to do this episode, I kept getting lost lost in the sauce. Talking too much about early Scandinavian history and how it shaped the Vikings that we would see. The militaristic pagans, as I've seen them described. Just as the Germanic tribes were at the gates of Rome, destroyed the West Roman Empire. The Vikings were at the gates of all of Western civilization, knocking on the new kingdoms the Germanic tribes had just set up in the ashes of Rome. In 511, there was a kingdom called the Kingdom of the Franks, the precursor to the modern-day country of France. And it controlled most of modern-day France, up into Belgium, up into most of the Netherlands, all the way to the Rhine River. And in 511, the king died. And he had four sons, Clotaire, Childebert, Clodomer, and Theoderic. And upon his death, he split the recently united kingdom of Francia into four. And it's so interesting looking at early Viking history, because you could already see all the threads, and the through lines that attach all these different stories to each other. All the different environments. The problem with the European political structure at that time, the opportunities that the Vikings will see, are going to keep cropping up. The Frankish kingdom will be divided multiple times when a ruler dies. It's really the history of the Frankish kingdom is defined by that. A single ruler unites it, makes a large empire, and then eventually he dies. And he has to split between his sons. That, and for the first time in European history, the real powers within it are no longer naval powers. The Greeks and Romans are not the ones leading the charge. No, the powers are land-based powers. And these land-based powers don't have any navies. Well, they do have some navies, but nothing like the Vikings will have. They're not navally focused. They don't have a large trade empire to protect. Hence, they'll be absolutely shell-shocked when Vikings do show up on their shore. People who they had some contact with, I'm sure. But these Norse would not have even been in the political peripheral of the Frankish kings. And when they arrived, probably in 511, the Franks were shocked, stunned. 
and the Vikings found a rich people with no real defenses. They would fall upon the Frankish villages with a vengeance, becoming fabulously wealthy. But in a cruel twist of fate, or maybe just a good ending to a good parable, this great fortune that the Vikings were in the process of attaining ended up being their downfall. For now, when King Theoderic found out about this, he sent his son with Theodobert, and whether being tactical aptitude or just pure luck, a good roll of the dice, if you will, Theoderic found these Vikings with half their fleet at sea and half the fleet still loading up the treasures they had just won. He was thus able to divide and conquer. The Vikings' advantage was really with their naval ability, their understanding of the seas, their better boats. And when half the army, half the Viking army, is stuck on land, well, that's where the Franks thrived. In fact, there's a lot of historical arguments the Franks were better fighters than the Vikings at this time. That having much to do with the better equipment they would have had. There's a story, and I apologize, I don't remember where I read it. But it's of a Germanic tribe coming to a Frankish king, I think it's Charlemagne, and trying to trade with him. And they bring him a hundred swords. And he scoffs at them, laughs, saying, why would I need your swords? He takes his sword out, and he would bend it from, like, tip to hilt to where it touches. Then he would pick up a sword that they brought to him and try to do the same thing, and it snaps in half. And he turns back and basically says, these are worthless to me. Many of the famous swords and legend will be Frankish swords. Swords like Graham, Danesleaf, Skofnung. During the actual Viking Age, there'll be what's called Ulfbert swords. Which were swords that were masterwork quality. They're believed to have been made by a single smith. Then later his apprentices as he died. Where we see them pop up for a good 200 years. The smith was called Ulfbert. Which was a Frankish name at that time. And why we think it was a single Frankish masterwork smith. Who would maybe take on one or two apprentices. And then they would in turn only take on one or two apprentices. And so it was a small tight-knit group of masters. Making sure that their secrets didn't get out. But of course, there's only a few of these masterwork blades. These are the Mona Lisas of sword making. The absolute pinnacle. The best of the best. And only one master made them. But they were so famous, so widely known, that we can see throughout history, there'll be other Ulfbert swords that pop up. Of people just putting the stamp of this master craftsman on their sword. Yet people are able to distinguish an Ulfbert sword. Because it's so grand, so perfect from the lesser fakes. The forgeries. The Frankish kingdom, as of 500-600 AD, has stepped into the role that the Roman Empire had filled for the 500 centuries previous. It was now the great civilization that was pushing forward the technology, both militarily and economically, through its internal trade routes. It was now the civilization that these tribesmen, what the Romans called barbarians, when they were looking for places to get wealthy, now... The Frankish kingdom is where they went to raid. The center of civilization just moved north a few hundred miles to where as things change, the more they stay the same. So the world that the Vikings would sail into in the late 8th, early 9th century was one of familiarity. They had been dealing with a great empire to the south for generations. They've been trading with the Empire specifically for weapons to fight the local tribes, both Germanic and Scandinavian, since Julius Caesar conquered Gaul. So a long, long time. They may have not known the political landscape of the world they would sail into, but they understood in a general sense 
how it worked, where the money would be, where the people, the slaves, those who would fight and those who wouldn't, where to go, when to go there. And this would be their ultimate advantage. They would kick off the Viking Age. And there's two real dates that you can start this Viking Age at. The first being 789, when three Viking ships raided the little island of Portland in the south of England at that time controlled by the king of Wessex. This king would send his advisor, Budaherd, to see what's happening. Why are these people attacking my land? Is this war? Is this just a random raid? What do these people want? How dangerous are they? He didn't know anything about these Vikings, and so left Budaherd to figure it out. And when Budaherd got to this island of Portland and went to meet these Vikings, under the protection of a royal envoy, the same protection that has been used since the Greek times, to where you don't hurt diplomats. It's seen as the greatest crime that you can do. There are certain rules to how states interact with each other. And this protection of diplomats, at least in the Western world, is almost universal. You can kill the diplomats and the envoys, Sparta through the Persian envoy in a well, with the famous line, you want earth and water, which is what the Persian king demanded of them to show that they would willingly be his subjects and they famously say well you can have all the earth and water down there kills them drowns them but it's also a sign that you're agreeing to total war that you're willing to fight until your society is destroyed there will be no simple white peace so Buterherd gets to these vikings with probably the expectation that the historical precedent of his safety would be respected as for the most part, the people in the Western world still followed the example of the Romans and the Greeks before them of, unless it's really bad, unless two societies that hate each other are about to duke it out in a final Armageddon, the diplomat's safety is almost assured. And why would he ever think that these Vikings, these three ships that are currently on a small island off the coast of England, would ever put his life in danger? But when he gets there and Budaherd asks these people who they are, well, they tell them they're from Norway, specifically the Hordaland region, and then they kill him and leave. If the Anglo-Saxon rulers at that time had known what was to come to their people, they would have all started to build fortifications along the coast. There is some evidence that Mercia in 792 built some fortifications, but nothing as extensive as a people who knew that their society was about to be at, on the brink, would have built. The Vikings broke the custom of, you know, protecting the envoys, not doing, not killing them to send a message. But that in itself is not that shocking to the people of Western society, civilization. That had been happening throughout our history. The story I just told had the, had the Spartans breaking that code of honor. So it did happen. It was just shunned and looked down upon. What they would do next in 792 would strike at the hearts of Christendom, at the very souls of the believers. Off the very north coast of England, where it basically is almost touching Scotland, where the modern-day border is, there's a little island. It's now called the Holy Island, but at this time, it was called Lindisfarne. Started by a man called Aidan, its first nine bishops would all be considered saints after their deaths. It was almost a factory of holiness, filled with holy relics, helped by the, its bishops kept being sainted after their deaths. And 
it would produce such intrinsic work that afterwards, generations later, after it had been destroyed, the people who came and looked at what it had built thought it must have been done by angels. It was that beautiful. No human could create such beauty. It was not just the center of much of England's religiosity. You have to understand that at this time, monasteries were more than just a place of worship for a few select fanatical monks. They became places of political power if the monastery was large enough and holy enough, as kings would naturally want to put their power base near the monastery. So in times of need or stress, they can go be prayed over by those monks. And the more religiously fervent the monks were, the more holy, naturally, the more powerful those prayers would be, meaning that larger and larger political players would find homes or estates close by. So the political power would coalesce in areas around strong monasteries. And Lindisfarne was the most powerful in England. But there were also centers of economic activity, being as the monks were the only really literate people in the society. They became the keepers of knowledge. And as the keepers of knowledge, they had to constantly create new books. So they would need craftsmen to help them facilitate the maintenance of knowledge, copying down on more books. They would need leather workers gold and silversmiths to help with the iconography. The more holy a monastery, the wealthier it became. And Lindisfarne was the wealthiest in England. The best craftsmen went there to create the most intricate relics, to learn what they could from the ancient sources that the monastery would hold on to. Much of the later Renaissance-era learning that the people in the 15th-16th century found they found in texts that have been kept by these monasteries. So the best craftsmen, philosophers, and the most powerful people all would coalesce around these monasteries. And it was a pretty safe place. For when everyone is a Christian, it's looked down upon to raid the most holy, sacred places in Christianity. For no matter how much you hate the other person and you wish for their wealth, if you truly do believe in God, your eternal damnation takes precedent. And while there certainly were raids on monasteries by the Anglo-Saxons against each other, that, that did happen. It was moderated. No Christian wants to kill a holy man, a priest, and melt down the holy relics for simply simple gold trinkets. That just didn't happen. In 792, a group of Viking longships would sail up to this holy island and would stab the heart of Christianity. And it's hard for us in the modern day to understand just how world-shaking this event was. How it almost didn't seem possible. The religiosity at that time would not allow this great tragedy to even occur. It would be like if you woke up one day, instead of sleeping on your bed, you were sleeping on the ceiling. Where while you were in bed, gravity flipped. It would break something in your mind. John Hayward in his book, North Men, I think gives a pretty good description of it. Quote, it is difficult today to understand exactly how shocking this attack was. Even their reaction to 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington, D.C., which robbed the Americans of their sense of invulnerability, falls short as a comparison. The Americans may trust in God, but they do not make him responsible for their defense policy. Early medieval Christians did. Belief in the power of the saints to intercede with God to protect their holy places was absolute. All of our Europe monsters were completely undefended. And certainly, no Christian would have dared have risked divine retribution to violate them. End quote. I often wonder if this attack on Linda's farm was not decided four years earlier. If when those three Viking longships 
attacked the southern island of Portsland. If when they were slaughtering indiscriminately, taking slaves, they didn't ask the people. Where was the richest, most powerful place on England? This island of Lindisfarne, which was famous all across England for its wealth, its holiness, its ability to create art so beautiful it had to be divinely inspired. I don't know about you, but if I was a raider, that would sound like a juicy target. If the Vikings didn't get seeds planted in them. And then the worst possible thing for the people of England and the people of France happened. The raid was a wild success. It went perfectly for the Vikings. They showed up at an undefended island full of treasures of a whole people to where the monks, as they swore not to shed blood, they even fight back. If you're a raider, can you ask for a single better situation in all of human history? I can't think of one. The idea that you would put all your wealth that normally the people would give to the gods to protect and whatnot, and you'd put all of the wealth in a single place on the coastline, secluded from others to keep its holiness, but secluded, where the defenders of these holy relics, these most valuable items, are sworn to not fight, to never shed blood. And today's modern mind, that seems crazy. These people were asking to be raided. Of course the Vikings showed up. But I am sure when the Vikings went back to their people, this specific group is thought to be from Norway, they showed all these riches, these new slaves, all this gold they got. And the people who they went back to or poor farmers, poor sheep farmers, most likely, with no real economic or political mobility. The Viking hierarchy was somewhat set, and it was kind of hard to move within it. And they showed these people, these Scandinavians, these old Norse, the riches they had acquired. And then they would tell the stories of how easy it was. And no one even fought back. Is that not a tale that could galvanize a people to sail away from their shores to find these riches, these undefended lands? If you were the second son of a no-name noble with no real land to your name and no real opportunity to ever acquire that land in your homeland, at that point, I feel like it's harder to make an argument why you should stay. When you shouldn't join these expeditions to a faraway land. When people keep coming back richer and richer and richer. And more people have slaves. The long hauls start bursting with faraway gold. The silver rings that have been in your family for centuries. Were now almost worthless because they're so commonplace. I think it's very easy to make the human argument of why. There was this mass exodus from the Scandinavian countries to where Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark all had their own individual societies. And they were somewhat related. They had similar customs and language. But every single town within these countries would send out these expeditions, which became almost a yearly thing. When spring rolls around, it's time to raid. And there has been many different arguments why this event happened. Why the first Viking raiders left Scandinavia. I think it's very easy that you can make the argument that maybe just one man with his three ships made it to Portland and he found that it was profitable. And the slaves he took told him about this holy island 
of unimaginable wealth that was unprotected. And once he righted that, he took all the riches he gained back to his local village and it spread like wildfire. But there is many explanations that historians put forth to try to better understand why this event occurred. Why the Scandinavians in the mid-8th, 9th, 10th century left their homes and basically went to war with all of France, England, Ireland, Russia, all the way down to the Mediterranean. I read everything from the Justinian Plague, which is thought to have wiped out something like 50% of all Scandinavians. It's called the Justinian Plague because it first crops up during the reign of Justinian in the Byzantine Empire. That being around the mid-century of 580, so like 540 to 550. Of course, plagues move slow. Well, they can move fast, but it's thought that this one probably took a few years to reach all the way up to Scandinavia. It was probably a few decades afterwards that this first bubonic plague, because really the, the big one we think about, the Black Death, was the second bubonic plague. This was the first. And what the second one wiped out something like, well, you get a pretty wide range of guesstimations when you're working with as inadequate of a data set of the censuses and medical writings of the mid-1300s AD. But the easy-to-remember number is about half. Maybe maybe 40%, maybe 30%, maybe 60%, but about half of everyone in Europe died. And think of the societal changes that that inflicted on the people. That's the time when you get the plague doctors with the big masks, the flagellants who'd walk around the streets whipping themselves in the name of God. People, people would go insane. Death was all around them and they couldn't explain it. The people who had come out of that time period in Europe after the Black Death were so different from the people who went before. It's like the people who lived in the European countries before World War I and the people who lived in European countries after. It was such a shock to the system that the political and religious institutions that the society was completely built on were shattered. I mean, just think about our modern world with COVID. What percentage of people actually died during COVID? I think I saw in the New York Times something like a million Americans died of COVID. That's something like 0.3%. Yeah, think about how shocking it was. How it forced you to picture a world you never thought you would live in. One of a disease that in the beginning there's no real defense against. I mean, we could lock down and try to completely shut ourselves out from human interaction. That's really all we had. But we were only able to do that because we understand germ theory. We know how diseases are spread. Now imagine if we didn't, to where everyone got COVID. There was no hiding from it. There was no lockdowns. Instead of killing 0.3% to where someone knows maybe one or two, three, four, five, six people who died. Instead, it's 50% to where you think of everyone you know in your life and put them all on a line. And then count one, two, one, two, one, two. And every person who's a two is dead. That doesn't change you. That breaks you. And that happened to the Scandinavian countries, probably in the late 500s, early 600s AD. Is it really so shocking that the people that would come out of that world, maybe you would become more religious, more pagan, more vicious. So when they eventually did make long boats and decide to reach out into the wider world that was Europe at that time, 
they had become almost a time capsule to whereas the wider Europe, even though it had great casualties of the Justinian plague, eventually moved on with its religious and political institutions. The Scandinavians didn't. The people who survived were the most fervently pagan, the most fervently entrenched into the warrior society they had built. So while the Christians and the Germanic tribes adopted Roman institutions and Christianity for all the good that did to society, it also changed it. Made it, well, not weaker, maybe less prone to needless slaughter, to needless violence, to violence that serves no purpose. The Christian God, specifically the New Testament Christian God, doesn't want any sacrifices, doesn't need any blood to be spilled in his name. Jesus specifically died, so no more blood needed to be spilled. I often wonder how Europe would change if instead of when they became their most religious, it was to a god that specifically said that no more blood needed to be spilled, if it was to a god that demanded a blood sacrifice. Maybe maybe even a human blood sacrifice. Let's, let's go so far as to say an Aztec god. What would the Middle Ages have looked like then? Is it even imaginable how much death, slaughter, and destruction would have been had? I mean, think about how much there was with a god that we, I think, now would say is on the more gentler sides. And while Christians would certainly kill Muslims, pagans, even other Christians, in almost biblical proportions, the religion by this time had already lost some of its more archaic leanings. So when things got really bad, it didn't call for blood to be spilled. You couldn't appease the gods. By destroying your enemies and handing up their things to them. All you could really do was pray and wonder why. Why it was happening to you. Why it was happening to your family, your friends. Why they were dead and you were left. So while the religious aspect definitely played a role in maybe making the Scandinavians more pagan than the average pagan. The particular flavor of Norse paganism differed greatly from its German counterparts. Well, there was definitely a lot of overlap, the differences were very stark. There's a reason it's a Norse religion, not a Norso-Germanic religion. So to better understand who these Vikings would become, you have to start where they came from. And to do that, we have to go to a man called Snorri. Snorri Sturlonsson. And as he puts it, the world was created, in quote, in the beginning... God created heaven and earth, and all those things which are in them. And last of all, two of humankind, Adam and Eve. As I hope you were able to tell, Snorri was a Christian. And he was writing from an Iceland that had been Christian for over 200 years. I point this out to you because it's important to remember that while Snorri is all that we have, and he put in a good effort to find good sources, he's writing about a people who didn't write much down. The Old Norse traditions, Old Norse religion, was really a skaldic tradition. A tradition of legend, of stories. An oral tradition. And while the Icelandic people had a habit of holding to the old ways longer than the people on the mainland did, it still had been 200 years. And he was really grasping at straws for a religion that wasn't always set in stone. There was no Bible to the Norse religion that you could go look for to find all the answers of creation. While there was a general theme and 
creation we believe was somewhat set in stone. The little trinkets we have of different old Norse writing using the rune stones and different snippets we get from them shows a religion that's fluid. A religion that allows certain imaginative scalds to twist the facts a little to more fit their own personal beliefs or to more fit the situation of the people they were giving the story to. And while Snorri is where we get most of what we know about the Norse religious tradition, and the reason why he's attributed with so much of our understanding of the Norse religion is that he wrote one of the main books about the Norse religion. We really only have two, and we don't know the authors of the other one, called the Poetic Eda, so it's hard to attribute it to one single man. The Norse religion, though, starts more like, in the beginning, there was nothing. Just a single plane of flat dirt. No grass, nothing. And out of that single plane, a tree started to sprout. A single tree. This one tree would later become the world tree, Yggdrasil. And this tree was not just the world tree, for there was more than just one world. Niflheim was in the north, a cold hellscape straight out of Dante's Inferno. In the south was the opposite, Muspel, a fiery hellscape, more in tune to the modern day hell. So where in in the place between, where fire and ice meet, a giant was born. The first true creation, Ymir. And from his sweat droplets, or his limbs, a whole breed of frost giants would come into existence. And eventually, a frost giant called Bor would take the frost giant Bestel to be his wife, and he would have three children, Odin, Vili, and Ve. These were the first gods. These were the Aesir, the Norse pantheon, the greater beings that cared somewhat for humans, and much like the Greek gods before them, Odin would attack their predecessors. As Zeus had killed the Titans, Odin now killed the Frost Giants. And specifically, the first Frost Giant. This is how Neil Price in his book Children's of Ashenown tells the story as an ancient Norse scald would. The three young gods lie in wait for Ymir. They ambush him, kill him, literally ripping him apart. Ymir's blood arises and arises, drowning all the giants but two. Brigelmir and his wife who float away on a raft. He and his kind, the frost giants, will make their own world. They will return. And they will remember what Odin and his brothers have done. As the blood begins to recede, the gods drag Ymir's corpse into the center of Ginunga Gap. From the giant's torn flesh, they make the land. His hair becomes the trees. The waters flow from his blood. All the rivers and lakes filling red. The bones are the rocks and the mountains. His teeth, his molars, are the boulders and the scree. Above it all is the dome of the sky, made from the vault of Ymir's skull. To support his heavy weight, the gods set four dwarfs on the corners of each earth. Their names are Ostri, Vestri, Nodri, and Sudri. The cardinal points. They then throw clumps of giant's brains into the heavens, forming the clouds. Around it all, the gods are the great fence made of Ymir's brows and eyelashes, a defensive boundary for the world, a mighty seawall against the encircling ocean of blood. They call this palisade Midgard, the name by which the whole earth will be known. The home of Ash and Elm. End quote. Hearing that creation story, the very founding of the Vikings, of humans, is it really so shocking about the events that are about to occur? Where do you think you come from? Says a lot about you.
For example, in the Christian creation story, Adam and Eve are given a paradise. They're told not to break a simple rule. They can live in that paradise forever, but they can't. They can't follow God's laws. The human curiosity is too strong. And they eat from the apple of good and evil. But the world that was given to them was given to them by a, a kind God. A God who wanted the best for them. The Viking world had to be one. It had to be created. Before Ymir died, Midgar didn't exist. To carve out a place in this world, a place in existence, the Norse gods had to set a whole people against them. A people who would never forget the original crime. And they will have their revenge when Ragnarok arrives. The end times. When oceans rise and mountains fall. And frost giants come for all. The Norse gods, the Aesir, will all die. All be killed by the wave of onslaught of violence that is to come. The great Viking warriors that made it to Valhalla, to Odin's Hall, shall perish. All shall be undone. But out of the old world, a new one will rise. To where just as the mountains fell, they will eventually climb back into the sky. And as the ocean arose, it will eventually shrink back into the bottom of the earth. This mythology of destruction, of literally carving the world out of the, your dead enemies. Odin only got the crystal clear water of the Scandinavian fjords through the blood of his enemies. The fertile farmland that the Scandinavians would find only existed because Odin planted his enemies in it. It makes one think of the age-old hypothetical of what came first, the chicken or the egg. Maybe the real question is, who made who in whose image? Did the Norse create Odin in a reflection of the society they saw? Or did the stories they were told as children make them into what they will become? But what did they become? These people who would sail down from the far north? And now we get to the real difficult part of any historical examination of the Vikings. The problem is, while they were a literate society, they didn't practice writing. And while on the surface that seems to be an antithetical statement, it is owed to the relationship that the Norse have with their own writing system, the runes. While we don't know exactly if they know who created the runes, or if it was just lost in time, the story that we know of the person who had runic inspiration wasn't some random Danish farmer, or maybe even some great prince who was divinely inspired. No. The man, well, I really should really call him the Aesir, that created the runes was Odin. And to do so, he had to hang for nine days before the idea came to him from some greater being. Thus, the rune stones were not something to be used for such mundane tasks as writing to a friend or defining tax law. They were a source of power, of magic, and had to be respected and used sparingly. As such, we have no real first-hand accounts of the Norse from the Norse. The people we get it from are either Christian or Muslim. They absolutely hate the Norse, despise them, look down upon them. If, if you're looking at it through a modern term, they're sort of racist towards them, think they're a lesser people. But of course, may, maybe race is the wrong way to say it. Maybe a, a more bigoted religious viewpoint would be the proper term for the views of people back then. It wasn't until centuries after the real Viking Age had ended, when all the Norse had eventually became Christian, and the runes lost their magic, because that was sacrilege. Only then do we get the writings from the Scandinavians about the people, about their culture, about their religion, 
It's like if you were sitting down in front of your TV and you're watching a show, a modern day show, but instead of it being in, you know, high definition, full color, we have all the correct lines to where we know how it how it should look, what the people in the past should be like, how they should function. But there's several of the the, the pictures a little grainy. It's not in full color. It's really in black and white. And while we can use like digital upscaling to make it look better to what it should look like, we're missing a few key details that gives it a little bit of an off-putting quality. The history of the Vikings. We have all the information about what it should look like, what it probably looked like, what the Norse actually lived and believed. We have roughed guesstimations, maybe not even roughed, like pretty good guesstimations. At the end of the day, we have to go off stories. And that's a lot of what history is. In lots of time periods and eras, we only have a few voices from the past to tell us what really happened. And while modern day historians like to scoff because they're inevitably biased in one way, and there's been a recent push to make history much more scientific, I'm of the firm believer that history is still somewhat of an art. To where, to be a good historian, you have to be able to color in the details properly. You have to look at the lines that you're given, and you need to be able to finish the painting from there. And one of the best modern historians at this, and an absolute expert when it comes to the Viking era, is a man called Neil Price, and his recently released book, Children of Ash and Elm. And the importance with it being recently released is there's currently been a resurgence, a revolution, when it comes to Viking thought. With so many recent archaeological discoveries completely changing the way that we perceive the whole entire era and the people within it have lived and functioned. So this is the average Viking, according to the expert Neil Price. Like so many people before our modern time, the average Viking was a farmer. What could be considered a free farmer. Not free in the sense that he didn't have obligations. He used to have to pay taxes, whether that be gold or maybe fleece from his sheep or some of his pigs. No, he was free in the sense that he wasn't a slave. He would live on a small farm, him and his nuclear family, maybe 10 persons in total. And this household would eventually build a palisade around their farm, probably start as a mere fence to keep animals in. But if they were successful and rich enough, it would naturally grow. And their little 10-person household would eventually grow to maybe a 40-person household. So instead of being like one or two buildings in the center of this fence, it would become five, six, seven, eight. And if this settlement eventually becomes rich enough, maybe it's in a very advantageous location, they would eventually build a longhouse, just a large building, to where at night or at any time they would want to get together instead of having to be all separated in their individual homes. They can all coalesce in one big communal area. And these long houses, or better called long halls, is really the political institution that would dominate Viking politics. And it's easy to see why. They have a a, a reconstruction of one of these, the longest one they found, called the Chieftain's House in Norway. It's 270 feet by 30 feet. It's not big. It's massive. And part of the reason that it's so massive is that you simply just don't see wooden structures that large anymore. Or anywhere, to be frank. And once a society got to a point to where it could build a long haul, it's at a prosperity level to where not everyone in that society needs to be farmers. Some can become professional warriors. 
And it's within the halls of the Longhouse that a militaristic honor-based society is going to become supercharged toward the skaldic tradition of storytelling. It was probably produced over hundreds of years of long winters with not much sun. I mean, it's easy to picture now. If you've ever gone out drinking with some of your friends, and the stories naturally go back to your old escapades when you were younger, dumber, but also a little bit more adventurous. Except you're not in a room with just you and your friends. It's the whole entire community, everyone you love and care about. Everyone here you're trying to impress. And the distance between the longhouses, the the bogs in Sweden that separated them, the fjords in Norway, naturally led to the isolation of communities. To an independent people who had natural barriers to protect them from the more centralized empires in the south. This meant that no single person could unite the Scandinavian tribes into one empire, like the Frankish Empire did. It had a lot to do with they simply didn't need to. There wasn't a large threat that they needed to band together for. As such, no single person could ever really unite the petty kingdoms that would spread up from each longhouse as it projected power in its local area. And while originally there was a thought process that the Scandinavians were getting crunched for space to where their population was exceeding the ability of the land to feed them, modern theories disproved that as the population would rise for the next few hundred years with no real advancement in agriculture. And there is no great Norse famines that didn't affect the rest of Europe. And it's this warrior class that was really the Vikings, the raiders, the marauders, the scourge of the Middle Ages of Europe. And so as such, we will really leave behind the majority of the Scandinavians and focus on this elite class of warriors that would become known. And the warriors, by their nature, were even more ingrained within the Holic traditions. They were the people that the, the skalds would be the one creating heroic poems for. They were the ones who controlled the local farm areas and were able to take the wealth from them. They were the ones that would eventually go raiding and bring back the wealth of others to their people. They were the heroes, the leaders, the super warriors of their time. And really it's because there's so many different aspects of the Scandinavian lifestyle that we've touched on. They all get mixed into the single bag that makes the society more and more militaristic. For example, we talked about Valhalla, which is kind of a bastardization of what they actually believe, as even though it's probably lost in time, there were other halls. Valhalla, of course, being their afterlife, to where any great warrior who dies in battle with a weapon in hand honorably would be sent to Valhalla to Odin's Hall to await the final call for Ragnarok, the final battle where they'll get to die valiantly against the Frost Giants before the world is renewed again. But it wasn't the only hall that Vikings, when they died, went to for an afterlife. Now, for example, women are told to have gone to Freya's Hall, the god of fertility. And Thor had a hall for the slaves and the thralls. There was a hall for the people who drowned at sea. There's almost assuredly different halls that we simply don't know of lost the time. The Norse mythology is based off the culture they lived in. They imagine the gods living... A relatively similar life to the ones that they did. So that meant that even though each god had a hall, they weren't easily connected to each other. This would be very similar to the actual distance between the long halls and the Norse society. The isolated nature of the halls meant there was no 
centralized policing force. There was no centralized army to maintain the peace. So the individual safety, the individual liking, would eventually be tried by his own skilled arms. And this need to constantly be proving oneself through their martial ability really folded into what the Vikings considered to be a masculine person, a kind of person that they would look up to, a leader. It's in the same vein that in the modern day, to be a good citizen is now pushed that young high school students need to go to college, get a better education to better themselves, be able to properly integrate into the workforce. For the Vikings to be a good citizen, one had to have incredible deeds, must bring honor to his family, his people, to himself. This is a quote from William Short in his book, Viking Weapons and Combat Techniques. Quote, Kettle Ormson expressed his view to his son in Chapter 2 of the Vatsdala Saga, thought to have been written near the beginning of the 14th century. He was not pleased that his son had taken no initiative in rooting out the highwaymen working nearby who had killed dozens of travelers. Cattell rebuked the young man, saying, The ways of the young people today aren't what they were when I was young. Back then, young men were either taking part of a raid or gaining wealth and honor in expeditions that called for manliness. But nowadays, young people prefer to stay at home sitting at the kitchen fire and filling their baddies with meat and small beer. Kettle concluded by advising his son, you have now reached the age when it would be right for you to put yourself to the test and find out what fate has in store for you. This honor, these great deeds, the things that would make you eternal, and scaldic poems, to do that, you'd be a warrior. You had to fight. And fighting wasn't seen as a necessary evil like it is today. It didn't come with any of the moral baggage that we now put on it, for better or worse. It was not even seen as almost the ends justifying the means to where taking from others for your own people is honorable. No, the actual honorable part of raiding was the fighting, was the actual killing of adversaries, having to overcome another person fighting for his life against you. Later in the same book by William Short, this is what he has to say about the, the mind of raiding. Quote, In the mind of Viking people, raiding was very distinct from theft. Theft was abhorrent, whereas raiding was an honorable challenge to a fight, with the victor earning spoils of rewards for his martial prowess. The distinction is vividly invoked in Chapter 46 of Eagle Saga. While raiding a coastal farm on the Baltic Sea, Igel Skala Grimson and his men were captured by the farmer and his family, who bound up the raiders. During the night, Eagle managed to slip his bonds. He and his men grabbed the captor's treasures and headed back to the ship. Along the way, Eagle was struck with remorse. This is a quote from Eagle. This journey is terrible and hardly suitable for a warrior. We have stolen the farmer's money without his knowledge. We should never allow such shame to befall us. Eagle returned to the farmer's house, set it ablaze, and killed the occupants as they tried to escape the smoke and flames. He then returned to his ship with his honor enhanced. End quote. The fighting was the honor. It was the end game. The plundering and the wealth enhancement was extra. It goes back to what do we hold as our core beliefs? How much do where we believe we go in the afterlife change the decisions we make during our life? The Vikings were fatalistic in the sense that they believed that fate controlled everything. That as soon as you were born, the day you were die was already set in stone. I remember the quote from Kettle when he's talking about his son saying, Now you've reached the age of manlyhood, you have to go see what fate has in store for you. The Vikings could control their actions, but not their lives. So why when you go into battle would you have any fear 
for your actions really have no control over if you die that day. So why would you not go out there and be a monster, an animal? Something that the scalds would sing about for ages. If being the tip of the spear and the charge meant that you could live on forever in scaldic poems and the memories of your people, it had no effect on if you'd actually live or die that day. Is it really so shocking that these men were known for their bravery? For all dying instead of surrendering? For being fanatical? And there is none more brave than the berserkers. The crazy wild men of the Viking Age. Maybe it's better to describe them as the shield biters, the wolf skins. And they're a great example of the problem we have when examining the Viking Age. Of, the, of this lack of real solid information. Of that we have lots of different hints at what it was like. But almost ironically, just like the people living in the time, so much of their life is surrounded with mystery and myth. And the berserkers are really both. The description we most obviously use for berserkers come from Snorri's saga, the Yinglingas. Quote, His men, Odin's, went without male coats and were as wild as dogs or wolves. They bit their shields, were as strong as bears or bulls. They killed people, but they themselves were hurt by neither fire nor iron. This is called going berserk. The term berserker and wolfskin warrior be used interchangeably within the sources. The modern interpretation of the Viking who's too angry to die, who's shirtless, un- unkept, and wields two axes, uses chemical compounds to make it to where they're incapable of feeling pain. This comes from 1784 with a priest called Oldman, who's a whole entire theory around the berserkers that they used mushrooms from the local Scandinavian forest to get themselves in a trance-like state where they can't feel emotions besides rage. This odd man had heard about the hallucinative capabilities of the mushroom agrig mushrooms used by Siberian tribes and tried to logically conclude that if the Siberian tribes can figure out how to make visions come to life, is it really so big of a leap to think that these berserkers, these Norse, could use the same and their hallucinations would be that of Valhalla, the final battle? A time when fear and pain no longer exist. That's the mindset that these berserkers would go into battle with. Other poisonous fungi have been propped up as maybe the reason. A specific one called Clavicebus purpurae. Sorry about that pronunciation. But it's been studied to death. I read a few doctoral theses about its specific reaction to the human body. And to many experts, it's the same as LSD. And if there's any baseball fans, you'll remember that Doc Ellis once pitched a perfect game. The hardest accomplishment in baseball. Something that only happens maybe once or twice a year. He did that on LSD. Said it made it better. Calmed his nerves. Made him more focused. Imagine a 6'4 warrior. Muscle-bound warrior. Whose whole entire life has been training with a weapon. And then he becomes ultra-focused and calm during battle. Maybe not calm, but maybe he does go into a rage. He becomes ultra-focused and angry. They kill you. That's a terrifying sight. The problem is how toxic the fungi that produces this result is. It's poisonous to humans. It has to be specially prepared by modern scientists just to make it safe for human consumption to test on. As such, most of the experts don't believe it's 
any way possible that the berserkers used any form of hallucinogens or mind-altering drugs to put them in this frame of mind for battle. They just didn't have the technological capability to take what was in their environment and properly synthesize it to make them angry or more vicious warriors. And the mushrooms they did have that would alter their mind, give them psychological effects, would have just made them lazy. There's been a whole entire theses written about what, what the Vikings could have taken. And they've all come to the conclusion that there's nothing that they had at their disposal. So what were the Berserkers really? Because they were definitely special. We know for a fact they existed. There's a law of a Norwegian king banning Berserkers in all of his realm. They're mentioned in enough sagas to know that they existed. And truth be told, if you ask any Viking expert, well, as I've read it, you'll get a different answer from all of them. They were elite warriors, the most prized possession of a certain retinue of any Viking war leader. They would get in this violence trance. They were called the Sons of Odin. It's possible that they were simply the, they're just the most religious of any Viking war band, the ones most religiously fervent. Is it really so hard to imagine that the most religiously fervent, the ones obsessed with the gods, whose whole entire dream in life is to be a warrior and die and go to Valhalla and fight with Odin during Ragnarok? Is it really so hard to believe that they could not work themselves up into a, a religious fury? Or they're so single-minded, obsessed with the glory of battle, of their god, of Odin, of Thor, that they don't feel pain? Adrenaline is a crazy drug in itself. What is adrenaline mixed with absolute assuredness? If you die a glorious death, you will, you'll be going to a paradise. And what is that mixed with alcoholism and societal pressures and fear and glory and honor and all the cauldron of human emotions? They're not only heightened at this extreme point, at this extreme moment in your life, but they're also sharpened. Where time seems to slow down and speed up at the same time. Is it really so hard to believe that they didn't need drugs to get into this religious, maybe, fervor? We like to think that they used drugs as a crutch almost. It was the shrooms that made them impervious to the damage they were taking. And I just honestly don't think they needed it. The human mind is a wonderful contraption. They can be taught. It's like a muscle. And these berserkers, before battle, they would have a dance. We don't know exactly what it is, but most historians believe it was some ritual that had important aspects to it from the Viking religion. But we, we don't know what those are. It was the fanaticism that made them impervious to damage. And while I agree, most historians talk about how, because we don't see the mushrooms in any of the skaldic poems... It obviously never existed. And while I, 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 again, I mostly agree with that assessment. But if you found a, a magical drug that gave you the anger of the gods and it gave your warriors the power of the gods where they were Thor reincarnated, maybe you would put that in a poem. Maybe you would write skaldic poems about it. But on the other hand, would you want your secret getting out? Do you really want your enemies to know where your power comes from? The reason I'm a little wary of completely ruling it out has to do with the second most famous part of the Viking myth, the Valkyries, the shield maiden, Odin's warrior women. And you really get two sets of historians and experts when you look at Valkyries. Those who wrote before 2017 
and those were after 2017. Before 2017, it was it was commonly agreed that the Valkyries were just the fantasies of warriors who, when they went in, when they went to die and go to Valhalla and be fed wine, why would you not want a hot warrior woman to feed it to you? Valkyries were seen as Odin's warrior women, the people who would fly above the battlefield and would decide who lived and died. To where if you tripped on the battlefield and were stabbed, it's because the Valkyrie decided that it was your time. The fates had already decreed it, and she was just carrying out their will. But there was no actual Norse women who take up arms. We have lots of archaeological evidence of different battle sites, and we have lots of different men who are buried with weapons. And while every once in a while, we would find maybe a woman buried with a weapon, but it wasn't in her hand like it would have been for those who trying to go to Valhalla. And for the most part, she was still buried with a Norse brooch which was really the the female version of a Norse engraved weapon. So in most Viking histories, they aren't a factor. It's a cliff notes about how the sagas cannot be taken completely as historic fact. And while we have to look at them for the cultural heritage, because it's all we got, we have to take, take a grain of salt because the Valkyries weren't a thing, because there's no women warriors. But in 2017, this, of course, was turned on its head with the advancement of DNA technology and a single gravesite in Burka, Sweden. They found a warrior with a sword, an axe, a spear, arrows, a battle knife, two shields, and two horses. They also found gaming dice, which we have found that most commanders are buried with gaming dice. So this warrior was obviously had some command capabilities. It was very wealthy. It was rare. I mean, not... Un- completely uncommon, but it was rare for a warrior to be buried with more than one weapon. I think something like 65% of the burial sites we found in Norway have only had a single weapon in them. So this warrior was wealthy, well-to-do, high status, a true gravesite of not some simple farmer who maybe raids on the side, no, but a full-time warrior. And as I said, in 2017, Modern Viking understanding of the gendered roles flipped. For they did a DNA analysis of this person and found two X chromosomes. And the idea of the shield maiden that had been fantasy for hundreds of years, almost a thousand years by this point, we can now confidently say that there was at least one. But then that begs the question, if there was one, how many were there? We obviously don't have every single grave of every Viking that died in battle, of every Viking that was a warrior. We have a very, very small percentage of them. And truth be told, we'll probably never know. This warrior might have been the only one. The one woman who was able to beat the stereotypes, take up the axe, and carve a place in the world for herself. Or maybe she was following what her mother did, her grandmother did. Maybe there's a whole entire brotherhood of these female warriors. The one account we actually have of Vikings in battle from Abo on the Siege of Paris in 1885 will talk about how when the Vikings are afraid and they go back to their ships, there's women there, women at the camp. They brought the women with them raiding. So this comes from the Nermal Das translation of Abo's Vikings attack on Paris. This is after the beginning of the battle when they get pushed back from the walls and the Vikings have to retreat to their ships. Which, there was women there, because they brought them on the raid. Quote, 
Then their wives cried out. So you have run back from the furnace. I know you, devil's son. Not even one among you shall chance upon victory. Was it all for nothing? I gave you Ceres. Bacchus. Boar meat? Why are you so quickly exhausted that you seek our shelter? Were you hoping to have a second meal, glutton? Is this wine the others return to? A fine welcome they will also get. End quote. So to me it seems like Viking women weren't violence averse. In Eric Rowdy's saga, it talks about his daughter, Freudis, who killed five women with an axe. And when her settlement was attacked by Indians, because it was on Newfoundland, she said that even pregnant, she took up the sword, beat her bare chest at them to show that she was a woman, pregnant, and that she would kill to protect her child. I don't think it's such a large leap to think that women, who also grew up in a martial culture, who would see their husbands take up the sword every single day, is it really so hard to believe that maybe one father only had daughters, so the oldest he taught the sword to protect them? But that's the great and the sad part about so much of the Viking history is that we will never know. We'll never get a solid percentage about how many warriors were in this battle or what percentage of them were female or from what area. We really don't even know what the battles might have looked like, what tactics would have been used. We have a general idea, but there's no historian there taking down notes like you have during Roman times or Greek times. So when we open the grave at Burka, Sweden, with this female warrior in it, We really now have more questions than we did before, but hopefully someday we may get a few more answers. The actual role of women in the Viking society was the role they've been for thousands of years in different cultures. They have the housekeeper. The man manages the farm. The man goes out and raids. The man brings back wealth, and the woman takes care of the home. She makes sure it's clean. She cooks the food, prepares the clothes, cleans the clothes, raises the children. The classic idea of the matriarch. And while it is believed that the Norse women had more freedom than their southern counterparts, mostly because there was laws saying that they could divorce more easily, that wasn't really the case. Their lives were still decided by the men. Their fathers still demanded the bride price. There's one famous quote from a Viking about he basically crying, saying that he doesn't know what to do because no man can afford his $3 bride price. And he's of too high of a status to lower any further. For warlords and high-ranking Viking officials, the best way to secure alliance is through marriage, through a daughter, a sister. Polygamy was also practiced by the Vikings. So it wasn't, un- well, polygamy for men. A man could have multiple wives, but of course, a female could only have one partner. That's not to say that sh- the female couldn't have sex with other people. There's a famous story in a saga of a female who was trying to get back at her husband, and so she sleeps with a male slave they have. And the man finds out, and of course has to do the only honorable thing, which is kill the male slave. So the married woman could sleep with another man, but it was dangerous for that man, because if he was caught, he had to basically fight for his life. But she had some power. One of the most famous powers that the Norse woman would have is they could divorce easier than their southern counterparts. One, they didn't have the Christian Pope to say it was illegal to where they had to get annulments. And for most of their history, they could be divorced simply by saying, I I don't want to be married anymore. I want a divorce and a witness being present. There's stories in all the sagas about different divorces for all different reasons. One was because her husband came home with a wound in the butt. That means he had turned his face to the enemy. That was the legal grounds for divorce. One was it because she lived in poverty. The husband wasn't properly supporting her. She could also divorce him then. And the saga of Burnt Nayal, the woman simply leaves because her husband's impotent. 
So while they could leave their husband, it isn't very likely that they would have a better life without him. As most of the money-making areas, or the areas of the Viking life that the, the man had to take care of. But it could happen. So, you know, it sounds like a pretty nice life. But then you have to realize that in all of the sagas, too, all these different men are taking slave concubines back home with them. So it could be that, you know, your husband leaves for work, you know, to go do a, a nice hard season of raiding to bring you back wealth. And then he comes back with a side piece that now gets to live in your house, eat your food. So, you know, advantages and disadvantages to the Norse female life. And then while there was certainly stratification in all of Norse society, especially between male and female activities, the raiding aspect of the Norse lifestyle worked almost as an early form of manpower necessity that required the societies to become more equal than otherwise necessary. A modern example of this would be Rosie the Riveter from World War II, to where all the men in the factories were drafted to go fight the war. So they needed someone to make the ships, the guns, the tanks. All the industrial might of America now had to be filled, and men were no longer there. So obviously, the people who took up the slack were the women. And the same happened in the Viking society, to where the men were the farmers and controlled the estates. But there was two raiding seasons, the spring and the fall. And at that time, the women's domain of just the house would be expanded to all the farm. And this culture meant that the women were not passed over in succession. To Well, yes, if they were married to a man, the farm would be in the man's name. But if that man was to die, it would go back to the woman. And if she died, it would go back to her original family. They had a really interesting rule in Norse countries to where if you lived, if your family lived on a land for more than six generations, it was illegal for you to leave the land not in the surf way of the russian empire more so that you couldn't sell the land it was now yours indefinitely and with the live fast die young lifestyle that the viking profession demanded a lot of times the women would become the rock of the farm they retained property rights so when they were married young to older men who had a high likelihood of dying they would retain their premarital properties and also inherit all the properties that he had won for the family. It was not uncommon for women to get married one, two, three, four times. Betrothals, it was rare for them to happen at 13. So quite a few of these women would eventually become wealthy farm owners. And while they would not work the land whenever they were married to someone, it would be his responsibility to deal with the land. When he was gone, which was for about half a year, maybe more if he was a traitor, a lot more if he was dead, she would control the the land. And she, while she didn't have equal rights to a a male farmer, she had more rights than a thrall, the slave she owned, and a lot more rights than the women to the south of her. But of course, the free farmer class was not the only class of people. We've kind of touched on it a little bit about the slave society that the Norse also had, the thralls. And now these were not simply people they went and took from the monasteries or the French, the Irish. Norse could also be thralls. The Vikings did not discriminate in their slaves. Now a Norse could become a slave for many different reasons. Failing to pay a debt, breaking an oath, killing unjustly. You know, common crimes that humans have done throughout history that now put you in jail Well, before modern times, we as a human race didn't have the luxury of wasting human labor. And while it's hard for us to imagine what a Thoreau's life is like, because 
as we have no writing for the Vikings, even the Warriors, the leaders, you can hopefully guess that we have absolutely nothing on the Thralls. We have archaeological evidence that shows the slave collars. We can show you where auction houses probably were. There's some laws in Iceland that talk about how much you have to pay in retribution if you kill a Thrall unjustly. I believe it's six cows. But the truth is, we don't really know. We have to use our intuition, our best guesses. And while slavery is all the same everywhere you look, it's also always different. The chattel slavery of mid-18th century American South differs from the slavery in Brazil. And both of those widely differ from what was happening in the Middle East. And those all differed greatly from what the Chinese did with the eunuchs. So again, all slavery is different. All slavery is the same. But going back to the class we know the most about, the warrior class, the leaders, the actual Vikings, this class of people, as we said, were set up around the long halls, controlled by the petty kings and the jarls. And the most important part for the jarls or the kings was to make sure they had a retinue that was fearsome, that was powerful. As even though we know most about the external wars fought by the Vikings, they were fighting internal wars far before they ever left the Scandinavian homelands. All the oldest Viking burial sites we have, so the ones dated before the 700s or 800s, before they left their home, are of course all still in Scandinavia. And they're all still warrior burials. A lot of times with several warriors buried within one longboat. That means a battle was fought there. So in this dark age of the Norse where we don't know what's happening really, they're really honing their craft. And their craft centers around the lith, what we would know today as a warrior band, somewhat similar to what we will see in feudalism during the Middle Ages, to where a single king will require loyalty from knights, except these knights don't have any responsibility to take care of the land, to protect the serfs. Now, in the lith, a single king gives weapons, armor, money, gold, women, slaves, and that warrior then gives an oath of loyalty to the king. He'll fight in his battles. Through thick and thin, he won't leave him. He'll die for him if necessary. This is what Gwyn Jones in his book, A History of the Vikings, has to say about this lith. Quote, Most would be men of his own country, drawn from the length and breadth of the land by the report of the king's valor, good faith, and generosity. But some would be professional fighters, plying their trade where the rewards were best. Danes loyal to an Englishman, Norwegians and Swedes to nuts thing mudled. The herdmen were the king's elect, or it might be better to say the lord's elect, for any great man with wealth or power and fame would maintain a retinue. Though here as elsewhere, king would seek preeminence, from them most was demanded, to them most was given. Swords, helmets, battle harnesses flowed from the king, arm rings and torques. He clothed their body with tunics of silk and cloth, and scrollskin and sable, and their bellies he filled with choice foods and mead from the horn. For those who earned them, there were axes inlaid with silver, and those who wanted them, women. And friendship with their own kind, and music and merriment in a hall, with mistrels, jugglers, colored dogs, and scalds, whose wrists were gold-haltered. And when the need arose, friendly embassies and punitive forays, the exaction of scat and recovery of dues, service at home and overseas, war and wounds, hard deeds, and sometimes death. Sweet is mead, bitter when paid for. These were the two sides of the medal, service, and reward. End quote. These are the Liths, the Brotherhoods. But just as a Norse woman expects her husband to properly provide for her or she'll leave, 
the Liths had an expectation of their leader, of their king. If they didn't get rich, they would find someone who would make them rich. But if they were properly taken care of, they were an elite killing force. Much like the Spartans would dominate the Greek world as they were professional soldiers in a world of citizen soldiers. These Liths were professional warriors in a time to where societies could not afford to maintain professional warriors. Knights hadn't really begun to take off. Western Europe was still reeling from the fall of the Western Roman Empire and was picking up the pieces. I can't help but view it almost as in an ancient form of a travel team. And to the non-Americans, this is going to sound wild. But in American youth sports, a lot of times there's individual leagues of a local town or area. And within those leagues, the best players will a lot of times get together and form what's called a travel team. Where they'll go across the nation and play the best players of other towns. But these players are just the best of a best of a single area. So where if they tried to fight the normal league that had been set up to where, you know, some of the good players are on a team and some of the bad players are on a team. You know, the teams try to stay somewhat equal to make the league semi-fair. If they try to play those teams, they would destroy them. Mercy rule them in any sport. That's what these Vikings were to the other societies. The people on the Viking ships were not the average warriors. On later Viking eras, when you get larger and larger and larger Viking fleets, you start seeing less and less wealthy individual warriors, but, you know, larger overall numbers. But the early Viking fleets, the elite Liths, the ones that are only one, two, three Viking ships, small enough to where you can properly equip them all with two shields, an axe, maybe a sword for most of them, a spear, bows, arrows. You know, those people fighting the warriors of some local farm town in England. And a little farm town in England doesn't stand a chance. At that point, you have farmer soldiers who have almost no training in actual combat against elite warriors who have the best equipment who have been trained their whole entire life and are bigger. It's easy to see why the Vikings were feared. But of course, to be a travel team, you have to be able to travel. And the Vikings, of course, had the longship. And this invention completely changed the warfare that Europe was used to. It's a lot like how the invention of the car changed how we moved infantry around. It's how in the First World War, to where a soldier could only move as fast as his own two feet, maybe a horse, a train if he's going in between controlled stations. In the Second World War, cars were much more prevalent, tanks especially. And it completely changed the speed of the battlefield. Longships did something similar to where they could hit a coastline and then be gone before there's any real response by the powers that be. They had an ability to choose their battlefield, which is one of the most valuable things any commander can have. They were the special forces of their era, able to get in, do a job, and get out. And they knew they were good. They knew they were better than the people they were going up against. I can't help but and print on them the special forces mindset. To where if you've ever listened to any of the truly elite special forces soldiers of the modern era talk about doing a job or getting ready for combat, they all say that their favorite thing is when they get the call that they get to go over and do what they trained for. I can't help but think this raiding was part of the Viking mentality of they finally get to do what they trained for ever since they were a kid. They finally get to go see what the fates have in store for them. And it's that draw, the unknown, 
I think we called in the last episode the lottery ticket of piracy that was so enticing to them. All you have to do is risk your life. And how valuable is a life lived in squalor, in abject poverty, fighting for every inch, when compared to the luxury provided by the gold and silver from the monasteries of southern Europe? But with a prize that valuable, you also have the opportunity to get life-changing wealth and move up in a stagnant social hierarchy. I don't think this idea of sacrificing your life for the betterment of your children's life or your wife's life, I don't really think it's that foreign to us. I mean, you can go back to stores throughout history. A West Virginia coal miner willing to go down into the mines and get black lung in terrible conditions, get paid pennies just to put food on the table for his family. Or an American settler who's willing to go out into the wilderness and settle land controlled by Indians to where there's a good chance that his farmstead gets attacked and he gets scalped and killed. Everyone he knows is dead. On the other hand, the Indians willing to go against people with guns just to defend the land that they have for their children, for their wives. But a lot of people at the fringes of society are willing to take the risks of the poor people with nothing to lose. And while there's lots of arguments for why the Vikings eventually left Scandinavia, why did we see this exodus of people when we did, James Barrett has a really good article about it called What Caused the Viking Age? And he looks at the different historical and scholarly articles that really try to make the argument of what single thing caused the Viking Age. And he splits it between technological determinism, environmental determinism, demographic determinism, economic, political, ideology, all the different parts of the Viking life that all had to work in concert to make the lists leave Scandinavia and go for more fertile hunting grounds. And I mean, we can run through them real quick. The, the, the technological determinism really has to do with the Viking ship. How around in the 8th century, the Vikings eventually did figure out how to put sails on their ships. Before, they had to row. And the problem with rowing a long ship is you can't do it 24 hours a day. You really can't go too far into the open ocean. Because if you're not rowing, then you don't have control of your ship. And you're at the mercy of the ocean. And as many sailors will tell you, she can be a cruel mistress. But as they eventually did invent the sail to put on the long ships, they could have 24-hour expeditions where they didn't have to row all the time. And while they could still row up rivers... For the most part, when they were at the open seas, they could just open up the sail and have the wind take them where they needed to go. And as such, as they created this technological advancement, they needed to use it, and you need to use it somehow. So the elites of the societies, the warriors, took this and was able to go find people who couldn't defend themselves. So the argument is the Viking Age happened because they needed to use the technology they invented. They had to find some way to use it. But of course, the counter-argument is there's lots of inventions that happen all the time. The Portuguese made sailing inventions. They didn't all become pirates. Just because you invent something doesn't mean you have to use it to leave your homeland. Doesn't mean you have to use it to raid. And this technology was not just used for the raiding part. We see advancements of trading all throughout Europe, but especially in northern Europe, and especially facilitated by the Vikings. So, of course, it didn't have to be the technology that whisked them away. But next, of course, is the environmental determinism argument, which is basically saying that during the medieval warming period, the Vikings needed to leave their land because they were having a hard time farming it properly. But as we talked about, there's no real evidence that this ever happened. 
the Vikings never had a crunch of numbers where they couldn't feed their people properly. Or at least not during this time. During the mini ice age, the northern countries, especially Iceland and Greenland, will have a really hard time feeding their populace. But that will be after the Viking Age has come and gone. The demographic determinism, of course, has to play a role with the environmental determinism, where the Viking people are feeling a crunch of numbers. And when there's too many people, you either get war or mass emigration. The one interesting argument that the demographic determinists make is that because the Vikings have a polygamous society to where one man could have multiple wives, there's going to be quite a few men who never really have a chance of getting a mate. So the raids seen through that land were really just a way of human slavery. The movement of human females from more populous, more equitable places to maintain the Norse imbalance. And while we aren't 100% sure, there is some evidence that some form of female infanticide was carried out by the Norse. So that would furthermore shrink the female population. And it would also help us explain why the Norse were so militaristic in the first place. If men have to constantly fight over mates in an ever-shrinking female population, being on top of the masculine hierarchy became even more important. And if you couldn't crawl the way up the hierarchy you were born into, sometimes it's easier just to go take from others. The economic determinist talks about how in the 8th century, trade had eventually started to kick back up to Northern Europe to where Arabian silver, Byzantine gold, French wine and swords were making their way to Scandinavia. It was showing a poor people the riches they didn't have. And while they could trade for fur or lumber even, there wasn't that much that the southern people wanted from them. But the one thing that the Byzantines and the Arabs loved was slaves. And as the Christians were getting to the point where they no longer wanted to take Christian slaves, and the Arabics were having a hard time getting enough slaves for their empires, the Vikings could step into the role of facilitators. You know, the economic middleman, able to go to places with an excess of young people, you know, take them, and give them to the people who'd be willing to, you know, work them. You know, do the dirty work that the big empires, you know, too big and too holy to actually do. But as we don't really know how large a part the slave trade was to the economics of the area, we can't really be sure just how impactful this lucrative source of income was to the risk or reward of the everyday lith or everyday Viking warlord when he decided to set out for a raiding season. One of the more interesting arguments, the political determinism, talks about how really the Vikings had to leave. It's because the intertwining rat's nest of oaths between different political powers in Scandinavia made it almost impossible for internal wars to happen. Neil Price in Children of Ashenelm talks about how when two warriors would get ready to go to battle, if they were friends, they legally couldn't battle. They would have to step out of battle and be saying, even though our two leaders are going to war and we have oaths to them, we also have oaths to each other that we cannot break. And as the Scandinavian world got more intertwined with the increased speed of travel, with the advancements of the better ships, wars became harder and harder to fight. More and more of your people started having oaths of loyalty to more and more of your enemies. So if you can't go to war for honor within your own kingdom or within surrounding kingdoms, you have to find new places and new lands where you can go fight. Because remember, you have to see what the fates have in store for you. The ideological determinist argument is really something that I've kind of hounded because I believe in it. 
This quote comes from Price in Novgorod, Kiev, and their satellites, the city-state model, and the Viking Age politics of European Russia. We are left with a sobering conclusion, is that the Vikings heard one of the few known world mythologies to include the preordained and permanent ruin of all creation, and all the powers that shaped it, with no lasting afterlife for anyone at all. The cosmos began in the frozen emptiness of Gap, and will end in the fire with the last battle. Everything will burn in Ragnarok, whatever gods and humans may do. The outcome of any actions, our fate, is already decided and therefore does not matter. What is important is the manner of our conduct as we go to meet it. The psychological implications of this and other aspects of the Norse religion bear thinking about. End quote. And if you remember earlier when I gave a quick explanation of the Norse mythology, I said that there was a rebirth, that after this Ragnarok, that there would be a new world. The reason I can't give a concise, clear narrative on what they truly believed is, again, it's because we don't really know what they truly believed. So some experts, like Neil Price, that the Norse didn't believe in a rebirth at all. The Ragnarok was the end, the glorious end, and afterwards there was nothing. But other arguments have been made that there is a rebirth afterwards to where once Ragnarok happens, the world again comes back up. And there was probably local variation on if a single society believed a particular version of the tale. So, well, probably all of these ideas probably had something to do with it. Are we not all just the sum of our parts? I can't help but to gravitate to the ideological argument. I happen to believe that what you believe changes you, affects you greatly. As those beliefs change, you'll naturally change to reflect them. So, well, certainly the Vikings weren't the only barbarian tribe to be enchanted with honor and fate. They were the most enchanted. They believed it in it the longest. And their version of fate and honor and a glorious death in battle was the most radical we found. And while there is, of course, examples of the world being born anew, and a lot of what we do know, it wasn't. Ragnarok was the end. The doom. And if you must die, and if all must eventually end, and there is nothing to live for after this, and the only people who remembered in your culture are those who died in battle and have runes carved in stones or have done such great deeds that the scholars can't forget them. Well, that would create generations of young people who are willing to take the world into their hand and squeeze it for all it's worth. But the next question is, now that we kind of have an idea who the Vikings were and maybe why they left Scandinavia, the next question is, of course, what did these Vikings look like? What did they look like when they would step off the ship, the long ship, and grab the dragon at its head? What were they wearing? What did their hair look like? What weapons were they using? What was the last face you would see before your death? I, of course, am going to have to do a little summarizing, a little stereotyping. Every human is an individual, and so they all would have had their own individual arms and armor. But, you know, we can take the average. I'll be pulling heavily from the book Vikings at War written by Kim Hjardar and Vegard Vike. If you want to know anything about the Vikings' way of war, this is an excellent book that I highly recommend. I think the most obvious place to start when discussing the imagery of the Viking would be the shield, their most ostentatious way of showing who they were. So what was this shield? Well, of course, it was a round shield. It wasn't like a Roman shield. You know, a thick square shield that covers all the upper body. No, it was a round shield. The wood was usually pine or spruce. 
it had a tapered design, so the wood would be thickest at the center and would be tapered down to be thinner at the edges. It was made by getting about seven planks and putting them all in a row and then just cutting the edges off until you have a perfectly round shield. And then a hole was cut in the middle. Then this hole is where the shield boss would go, which was basically just a massive metal sphere that stuck out a little bit within a cross guard on it, so you could actually hold the shield by its middle. The thing to remember with Viking shields is they weren't like Greek hoplite shields. They had a forearm grip to where like you can grab it and hold it up against your shoulder and it's steady. Now, all of the shields that we have found have followed this center design to where there's a shield boss in the middle that you hold on to with your wrist. And that forced them to make some concessions. So, for one, the, sh- the shield is, of course, made of wood, which, while easier to work, is not nearly as durable as, say, bronze or iron. That meant that, for many warriors, they couldn't just take a single shield to battle because the wood would splinter and break and they'd be defenseless, so they'd have to take one or two shields to battle. Well, so there are some advantages with that to where the Viking shield was easier to discard to where if the Vikings were in a bad fight and they had to get away. You can easily throw the shield away without having to unstrap yourself from it. When you're fighting in a boat and, you know, if you get thrown overboard, your shield doesn't take it, take you down with it to the depths. The other very famous aspect of the Viking shield is they were painted. And what that meant is that you could see which Viking lift controlled which Viking ship from a distance. While most of the shields that we have found have been either a solid color or sometimes they like to do a little swirly pattern. When we have found them on ships, they're usually on the sides of the ships, but they're always in a pattern. For example, one we found was alternating colors all throughout to where it was yellow and black throughout the ship. And while certainly this was probably chosen to be aesthetically pleasing, there's a reason that plaid is still used today. (laughs) It could have also been a way to easily identify a Viking ship at a glance. The important thing to remember about the way the Vikings used the shield was that because you're really grabbing on to really like a metal glove in the center with what the iron boss would be. You would use it for defense until the shield broke, until the wood shattered, and then you had another weapon. These shields, you would like to keep them throughout the battle. were not terribly expensive to make. It wasn't like you had to have a large amount of metal to make a single shield for a single warrior. There was an understanding that these shields would break. <laughs> I mean, you're taking wooden armor into a battlefield that is dominated by axes. The Vikings weren't stupid. The shield was specifically made to where the outer rings could fall apart or the all of the wood can, you know, fall off the boss and it was still useful. It was still a weapon. You could still deflect a blow with your metal glove. It was just another tool in the arsenal of the Vikings. But if a Viking got to choose what tool he could use in any battle, he'd always choose the sword. And we talked a little earlier about how the sword was really the warrior's weapon. You knew you had made it when you got a sword. That's when you were a true warrior. But the sword was so intertwined with Viking society as a whole that it's hard to understand just how many of the Vikings actually had swords. You'd have to be extremely wealthy for your sword not to be passed to your son for it to go with you to Valhalla. As we'll get into with the other, you know, equipment, the chainmail, the helmets. It's really hard to know the exact percentages of the Vikings that had these individual gear, these pieces. As all we have to go on is burial mounds. And how many average Viking is going to be buried with his most expensive gear? 
that his friends wouldn't take, that his enemies wouldn't loot from his body. Even in modern armies, to where gear is much more plentiful, how often is the storyline of the old veteran looting the dead while the young man is stunned about the death around him? And the old veteran has to come up to him, give him a dead man's shoes. Say, you're going to want these. These are good shoes. If soldiers have done that for millennium, we're going to miss some of the Vikings who had really good shoes or really good chain mail, really good armor. They won't be buried with them. But back to the sword. The sword was really important because of just how militaristic the Viking society was as a whole. To be a masculine and honorable man, you need a sword. The actual Norse word for sword was sverd, which is also the name they used for penis. And there's a lot of implications that come with that. For one, it makes it very stark that you're not a man if you don't have a sword. You literally don't have the things that make a male a male. Being stabbed with the sword also becomes an inherently feminine thing to do. If a sword is male genitalia, what does it say about the man who has it inserted inside of him? You have to remember this is a society to where the optics of something are almost as important as it actually happening. A Viking woman would divorce her husband just because he had a wound in his buttocks. That meant that the person who stabbed him was behind him. That's divorceable. Now, you know, maybe the marriage wasn't going great beforehand. It's a good excuse. The society as a whole saw that as a worthwhile thing to separate over. Up there with him, you know, not providing for you financially. The Viking sword was the usual one-handed sword, about, you know, 90 centimeters long, three feet. The classic Viking warrior who, you know, could choose his gear. Was probably going to use the old sword and board, sword and shield. Early Viking swords, and mostly the ones found in Norway, are going to be single-edged. To where one side is sharp and the other side is flat. These are probably easier to make. And so the poor Vikings you know, who, who had an axe but didn't have a sword yet. If they could find one of these would take it. The later Frankish model of the double-edged sword. Would start cropping up as we go later and later in the Viking Age. And swords would be very decorative. They were the sports cars of the Viking world. And if you have you know, a Lamborghini. Why, why would you keep his stock? Put your name on it. Engrave some runes of protection. Put some gold highlights throughout it. You know, really show that you're not a warrior to be trifled with. Because the sword was expensive. And if someone had an expensive sword, that means that they were obviously a good enough warrior to keep a better warrior from taking that sword from them. And really, the weapons were a lot like cars. They were the most valuable thing that any Viking would own besides land. The average sword would be like a nice sports car, maybe like a Camaro, a nice Mustang. And then you had like a level above that with the Ulfborth swords would be like the Lamborghinis. And you'd have, of course, knockoff Lamborghinis as people made inferior swords and put the stamp on it to sell it to an unbeknown spire who couldn't tell the difference. But if the sword is the sports car of the Viking armory... A real workhorse, the real you know truck, the Ford F one fifty, of the Viking armory was the axe. It was the working man's weapon, and just like the sword was the way to differentiate a common Viking Norse man from a warrior, where if you walked around with the sword on your hip, people knew that you were a fighter. It differentiated the warrior class from the simple freedman class. The axe 
differentiate the Freeman class from the Thrall class. It would have been the first weapon that any free man would have. And it, he would have taken it with him everywhere he went. One, because the Norse world was a dangerous world. But also because it showed people that he wasn't a slave. His weapon is what gave him his rights. All slave societies need ways to differentiate the masters from the enslaved. This can easily be done if the slave class looks different from the master class. So think the American South. But it's harder to do when everyone looks similar. A Norseman could be put into slavery by another Norseman for many reasons. And slaves couldn't have weapons. They could have one single tiny knife, as a knife was necessary to live in the ancient world. But they couldn't have any war weapons. Owning an axe is what made a free man free. But an axe was not simply something to cut down a forest with. A war axe was deliberate. It was specifically made. The original axe was very similar to the axe that you could see any forest man going out into the forest and using to chop down a tree. It had a narrow blade that, while was longer than the typical woodcutting axe, wasn't that much longer. As the Viking Age goes on, the face of the axe will get broader and broader until you eventually would have like the two-handed broad axe that could apparently cut a horse's head off in a single swing. And that becomes a terrifying opponent. Because remember, lots of these Vikings are using swords or single-handed axes. So if you're going up against someone who's using a two-handed axe who has the reach on you, and you're holding up a wooden shield, as all the Germans and Franks and Anglo-Saxons were at this time, that axe is going to smash through like an ox. And once your shield's smashed, he still has the reach advantage on you. So you better rush him or run away, because the next swing is coming for your head. In the late Viking era, these double-handed axe warriors will become almost mythical creatures in themselves. Most Vikings, of course, will still use the shield, and you can't use the shield if you're holding a two-handed axe. So the warriors who specifically choose the axe are the ones who aren't afraid to take a little damage, get a little injured in battlefield, a little blood flow, which of course makes them honorable in the eyes of the other Vikings, also a little scary. And what we have from the sources makes it seem that the two-headed axe wielder, while a terror on the battlefield, didn't seem to last too long on the battlefield, but he would die gloriously. And while we like to imagine that two-handed warrior in the midst of battle swinging against all his enemies, that's the Viking way of war in our mind. The true most valuable weapon that any Viking army could have was a simple spear. And while that pours a little water on, the fire of that image creates. The spear was more valuable in the type of warfare that the Vikings fought regularly. That being the shield wall warfare to where two sides interlock shields and basically run at each other until they hit, clash, headlong. And in this type of warfare, the most valuable thing that you could do was stab the enemy before he stabs you. And that's a lot easier to do if you have three feet of wood between you and him with a sharp point at the end and he has a simple sword. And he has to get in close to use the sword. The Kanga Spilet has this to say about fighting in this type of warfare with a spear. Quote, Never let go of your spear in the formation unless you have two. For one spear is better than two swords when fighting in the field. The sword was the thematic weapon. The axe was the practical weapon. But the spear was the strategic weapon. When the two shield walls clashed, space became a premium. 
It was hard to do large thrusts with a sword, its length almost becoming a detriment in close hand-to-hand combat. You can't really do a large swing with an axe, especially a two-handed broad axe. You need enough range to, you know, really pull back and let loose. And you really just don't get that in crushing hand-to-hand combat. But a spear, you can always thrust towards the enemy, underhanded or overhanded. And it also allowed more than just the front rank to engage in combat. The actual battlefield was not controlled just by the three to four meters between the two opposing armies and the few soldiers who were in direct combat. Your allies could now assist you in combat, where while you're fighting someone, a spear may come out and help you, or an enemy spear may come out and hinder you. While one-on-one combats built honor and were prized to win an actual battle, a two-on-one is much more preferable. (laughs) And spears allowed for two-on-ones to happen or three-on-ones to happen. The spear was the weapon for a man who couldn't let his enemy get close. The last weapon that any martial warrior would need, the last tool in his toolkit, would be the bow. And these were simple bows. The Vikings were not an archery people. They were not the Mongols. But every professional warrior is expected to be proficient in the bow for multiple reasons. The first just being hunting. While a throwing spear or a simple spear could be used for hunting. Anyone who knows it's a lot easier to kill something from 30 feet away. Something that's skittish than it is to walk up close to it and stab it with a sword. Bows were also used in warfare. But when two Viking ships would go to battle, if they were in the open seas... You would have a skirmishing phase, as in all warfare, where you would throw arrows or throwing spears at each other, you know, trying to get a few lucky kills, thin out their numbers just a little bit before the actual real battle of hand-to-hand combat commences. And this was really how bows were used by Viking warriors, to where it was expected that all warriors would be proficient in a bow, and warriors were expected to carry a bow, as it was a cheap weapon that could be made by themselves. You didn't need a professional armor or blacksmith to make a bow for you. You could find any nice tree, find a good limb, and, you know, whittle it down to be a proficient bow. Because these were really simple things. And these longbows were real weapons. They were the same longbows that we now associate more with the English peasants with the Battle of like Agincourt. You know, long bows that have a draw weight of 100 pounds. So if the Vikings are using this, you have to wonder... Why don't they have actual archer formations like the English would later have? The longbow, if it's a 100-pound draw weight, that can punch through almost all armor. That can punch through a Viking shield. But you have to remember in this society, everything goes back to its militaristic roots. Everything is controlled by status, how you look. It's not so much to win a fight. You have to win a fight honorably. And the bow was simply not an honorable weapon. It was a weapon that won battles, that's for sure. Just like the Vikings would stand in a shield wall, large formations of men weren't as honorable as one-on-one combat, but they won battles. The bow would be used to win battles, to weaken the other side. But if a Viking could choose between standing in the front in hand-to-hand combat or killing his enemies from afar, hopefully I have made it clear which one he would choose. The other aspect of the Viking was what kind of armor he would take. That's just as important as what weapons he would have. I mean, it could be argued that armor is more important for a soldier. Because the more battles he fights in, the better his skills become. So adding to the longevity of a soldier's life makes that individual soldier better fighting. Unfortunately for most average day Vikings, armor is expensive. An axe we talked about was a cheap way for 
the individual Norse freeman to have a weapon on him. There was really no cheap way of armoring yourself. You could do thick leather that, while it would not stop a cutting blow, a spear from stabbing you, it would, you know, protect you from nicks and scratches. Armor was very valuable. There's no way around it. The one thing the Vikings didn't have that their southern counterparts did was a large smithing network with great blacksmiths. A lot of the great Viking weapons would be Frankish weapons. A lot of the armor that we have from the Vikings, from their burial grounds, will be Anglo-Saxon armor and weapons. For example, we only really have one Viking helmet. And as every Viking historian likes to bring up, anytime the Viking arms and armor come up, their helmets did not have horns on them. There's no wings on it. It was very difficult for the Vikings to get professional smiths to bend the metal to make a correct helmet. The one that we do have that we know was used in the Viking era was found at Coppergate in York. It had a long nose protector, some cheek plates, and chain mail that protected the neck. It, of course, was different from most Viking helmets in the sense that it was all metal. Most Vikings probably would have just used cloth. On this cloth, they maybe sewn in some pieces of iron to actually give them a little protection. So if an axe hits their head, maybe it doesn't split all the way through. Just gives them a really bad concussion. They also had what was called a spiked helmet. This was called Vasenjan. It was basically just a helmet with a big spike on the top. And eventually this helmet they would put horse hair on. Not too unsimilar than from the Corinthian helmet that the Greeks were famous for. And while you might seem like this is counterproductive, why would a Viking wear a giant horse helmet when he's wading into battle? Does that just seem like it makes him a target? Well, yes, but it also makes him taller, more scary. And if you could have your enemy run before you even joined in battle, you'd already won the fight. I'm sure it also makes a striking figure. So any of the warriors around you would know the deeds that you did. Their eyes would naturally be drawn to them. And helmets were expensive. Now, they weren't the most expensive thing that we know of. That, of course, would be chain mail. And chain mail was probably the most valuable armor that you could get. Chain mail, for people who don't know is really just a whole bunch of tiny metal rings put together, strung together, all across the body. And that's what makes it so expensive. An individual smith has to create all these single chain mail pieces individually. A single smith could work on a single chain mail every single day for four months, and that's without repairing any that he's already made. Or if a single chain breaks, you have to take it to an expert smith to get that chain repaired. As such, the chain mail was expensive, very expensive. Only the richest of the rich could afford it. This chainmail would only be worn by the best warriors, the king's retinue. For most of the average Norse soldier, he'd only really get textile armor, which is to say that he'd be wearing thick leather or what was called this pansier. All it really was was layered cloth, but I guess anything is better than nothing. Thick cloth could save you from a light slashing blow, it makes sense why the Vikings would use a shield that is really only wrist-supported. You could easily move that shield to protect any part of your body. If you don't have really good armor, like say the Greek hoplites did, to protect the parts that your shield can't block, well then you need that shield to do a lot of heavy lifting in the defense department. But as you can see, the whole entire Viking kit is quite substantial. To be a fully kitted-out warrior... You need quite a few weapons, and these weapons weren't cheap. We don't have the exact numbers for Viking warriors, 
And of course, every single armor and armor piece would have its own individual value, economics and whatnot. But what we do know comes from the Frankish source, the Lex Ruberari, which gives it in Frankish coin, the Solidus. And one Solidus was worth about one cow. And so while the Franks weren't exactly similar to the Norse in every way, they were close enough to give us a good estimation. And now before you think that, you know, one cow is pretty cheap, a cow today could go for like $3,000, $4,000. And we don't use them as much as they were used in the past. A cow could save the life of a single family. It could be the prized possession of a whole farming community. Having warm milk in the winter saves lives. A cow is valuable. And this is the prices that we get from the Lex Ruberari. A coat of chain mail was 12 solidi. A helmet was 6. Greaves, another 6. Sword and scabbard, 7. Shield and spear, 2. So that's without the bow, but of course the bow was a fairly cheap weapon. The shield and spear were only 2 solidi. You know, we, we can guesstimate that a shield was 1, maybe a spear was 1, maybe a shield was 1.5, and a spear was only 0.5. So we can guesstimate a bow is maybe a half a cow, maybe a fourth of a cow. Not that expensive. Yet, when you add all those together, you know, the 12, 6, 6, 7, 2, that's 37 cows to outfit one single warrior. And you have to remember that a horse, which a lot of the king's guard would have ride, would have ridden, would be another 7 solidi. That's 40 solidi, 40 cows. Just to fully equip one single warrior. And that's just the basic armor. That's not getting into any of the swords that are inlaid with gold. The Ulfbert swords. The special swords. Swords that had significant value. A name sword. Those can get expensive. And if it cost 40 cows to just outfit a single warrior. How much cow- how many cows did it cost to outfit a war band? I think we used an average of, say, 30 warriors for a ship, an actual warship. And what you're looking at, you're looking at something like a thousand cows. Just outfit a warband of 30 men. That's expensive. You need to be a large landholder to even approach that amount. This is where the real warrior culture comes in, to where there is a specific warrior class of people. Because the Norse economic situation, the small freeman farmer, couldn't support himself let alone him or his brothers, his son maybe. They, they couldn't afford all the armor to outfit all the Norse people in elite armor. As such, they built a whole entire society around fighting the biggest badass, the best fighter. And that fighter would then go to the local king, someone who could afford to outfit him, and his loyalty would be bought with his arms and armor. That's because he could not buy it himself, and his loyalty was all he had to give. He was a large investment. The Jarls, to have a warband, would have to use the warband. You can't let that large of an investment just sit, wasting away. Luckily for the leaders back then, there's a lot of different things you can use an armored man for. The most obvious just being tax collecting. I have a feeling the IRS would be much more successful in collecting money if instead of being nice people, accountants really who you have to pay taxes to them, and if you get it wrong, they'll send you a bill. If instead it was, say, like, SEAL Team 6 comes and knocks at your door, and you don't know when they're coming, but when they get there, you have to have the money ready, or you have to find the money. And if you don't, well, I'm not saying they would commit violence against you, but they would find the money one way or another. 
And while that was probably the most common use of these elite warriors, just an enforcing force, that kind of business doesn't make it into the Skaldic poems. doesn't really make it into the history books. Instead, we get the different battles they fought, how these warriors would become the elite fighting force of a local ruler. And you have to start questioning, how much does the price of these warriors make the society more militaristic because you can't really again you can't leave that investment that 40 cows worth of arms and armor just wasting away not adding value and the easiest way to get value was to take it from someone else who had it you could easily recoup all the money that all your armor was worth if you just go steal from your neighbors but of course then the honor-based society the intertwining clan system the oaths became a chain around the Scandinavian society to where they couldn't raid from each other anymore because all their war bands were interconnected with brothers, cousins. The warriorhood became its own individual class of people. They could afford to teach their sons to be warriors like them. So the family ties started to get a little messy and it was harder for the, the Jarls to find the wealth from the tribes closest to them. So they had to start going further afield and further afield. And eventually, we get back to Lindisfarne where the three Viking ships found the jackpot. And all the money they would have brought back to the Scandinavian society, apparently the Norse society, the Norwegian society, all of a sudden they had not had enough wealth to double, triple their retinue of whoever financed the original journey. And this money would supercharge the society to where now the warrior class would be greatly expanded because people had more money. And with more money, you could outfit more warriors. So with more warriors... You could have more arms and armor. With larger warband, you could raid more people. And the avalanche starts rolling towards Western society. After Lindisfarne, the West didn't know how bad it would be. They only knew how bad the single action was. The 9-11 of their time. And the monks went to the one person they could trust. The most holy ruler in all of Christendom. Charlemagne. Because let's remember, when this Lindisfarne attack happened... The Western world was shocked. Alakun, a scholar at this time, had this to say about the attack. Quote, We and our fathers have lived in this fair land for nearly 350 years, and never before has such an atrocity been seen in Britain as we have suffered at the hands of the pagan people. Such an attack was not thought possible. The Church of St. Cuthbert is spattered with the blood of priests of God and stripped of all its furnishings, exposed to the plundering of pagans, a place more sacred than any in Britain. Who is not afraid at this? End quote. That line is really a, a question begging to be answered. He, need, he wants to know the answer. Someone who's not afraid. Remember, this is like 9-11. In the aftermath, who was not afraid of what was to come next? Where the terrorists were going to attack next? People wanted security, safety. These past Christians weren't so different from us as we would like to think. When this happened, they wanted security and safety. They wanted the wrongs to be righted. And again, there's only one man in Europe who had the power to do that, who had consolidated control of a large enough empire to be able to put a stop to these plunderings, these atrocities. Charlemagne, at this point in 793, well, the historians say that he could see the writing on the wall. And now how much of this is from the historians being his biggest fans as he Christianized all of Europe? And all the writers we have are monks. But he also did conquer a whole entire empire. So you have to, he had to be somewhat competent. Have some foresight. 
the monks when they found out that the monks at Lindisfarne had been captured went to to ask for him to ransom them back, and it said that he'd attempted it, but we don't know if he succeeded. Maybe he did. Maybe the reason why the monks went back to Lindisfarne after this first raid because they went back multiple times. They didn't just give up on the holy island. It took multiple atrocities before they finally abandoned it. But maybe the reason they went back is because the original monks got ransomed back. Charlemagne saved them. Christ had come through in the end. And so they went back to the Holy Island under now Charlemagne's protection. In 799, the Vikings will attack Charlemagne's empire directly. Apparently an island off the coast of Aquitaine in southern France. Lucky for the Franks, these Vikings were not nearly as successful. Where after they landed, some of their ships got damaged where they couldn't leave allowing the Franks to gather an army and crush them against their own ships. And Charlemagne knew how the Vikings operated. He knew that the riverways were their highways, where if you could cut off that, cut off the arteries into the center of the empire, the most valuable parts of the empire, in fact, all of Western Europe at that time, would be protected from these marauders, from these pagans. Christendom would be safe. As at this time, he had secured the empire. All of Western Europe, from Italy to Germany, to France, the lowlands, all of it was under one single crown, under him. And he had really defeated all his enemies. His armies were free to protect the coastline. He built fortified bridges across the arteryways, across the mouths of the river. He secured Europe against the Vikings. And while there is some Viking attacks in the next 20 years, it's really not that many. And they weren't really that successful. Charlemagne brought a peace with him that allowed for the safety of the individual Frank or German to be at the forefront, to be the most important thing. He was able to use his power to protect everyone, and he felt like he had a duty to it, and he made successes. The Vikings had a hard time raiding Europe at this time. Well, after the first raid on Lindisfarne, or in, and the first few raids on in Aquitania, there's a break. We don't really hear that many more raids, and they aren't really that successful. The piratical menace of the Vikings had to lull because they could no longer attack undefended people. Unfortunately, in 1814, Charlemagne did the one thing that all men must do at least once in their life. He died. And with him died the old peaceful world of Europe. The Europe that had the capability of defending itself. It's said that when Charlemagne found out about the first attack on Lindisfarne, he cried. For he knew of the terror that was to come to his people. It's why he spent the last years of his life building defenses against them. It's why the last military expedition that he ever led was against the Vikings attacking Frisia. But he died. He died too soon. His work wasn't done. 66 years wasn't enough to finish everything, all the tasks that God had given him. As such, the empire will not be secure. It will fracture. Europe will not be unified. And the Vikings will sail into a world ripe for plunder. And just as Odin fabricated a new world with the dead flesh of his enemies, made the rivers run with their blood, these Vikings will create a new Europe. With the axe, they'll tear down the old political establishment, the old ways. And with a sword, they will create their own new world. A world of the Danelaw, a world with the Normans, a world of swords and shields, a world of blood dominated by honor, tradition, oaths. These are the people that Europe will have to come face to face with, have to deal with for the next 200 years. And Charlemagne is dead.
Thank you for listening to part one of what should be a two-part series on the Vikings. Next episode, we'll be looking more into the actual Viking raids. Where'd they go? When did they go there? And who finally defeated them?